Good afternoon, and welcome to our monthly special edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, streaming live here on AchieveRadio.com. I'm Paul, and this is the return to Rendlesham number four, the fourth in our historic radio roundtable series marking the 30th anniversary year of the dramatic UFO events that took place at Rendlesham Forest and the adjacent NATO air bases in Suffolk, England, in December 1980. Uh, on our panel today are eyewitnesses to the incident, former U.S. Air Force personnel John Burroughs and Jim Penniston. We hope that former base commander, retired Colonel Charles Halt, will join us for part of the show, but he is uh, in transit to Washington, D.C. at the moment. We will participate tomorrow in a landmark conference on UFOs and nuclear weapons at the National Press Club. Our Rendlesham Radio series began on CBS Radio. Uh, April 11th, with a three-hour special and a large panel consisting of a number of experts in the field and almost every major eyewitness. We continued this on another three-hour special on June 20th, plagued with unexplained technical problems. We moved the series here to achieve radio, uh, internet only, but nevertheless reliable, uh, for return to Randallsham 3 on August 29th, cut both the length of the show and the size of the panel, and it seems to have been smooth sailing ever since, knock on wood. Our call-in number today is 888-235-7374, toll-free, U.S. and Canada, or use the quick message option on your computer screen. There also, if you look at AchieveRadio.com, there is a special number for our U.K. listeners to call in. Uh, we've had a number of questions about that, a lot of interest there, naturally, since that's where the incidents occurred. Uh, ben, I'm sorry to say, is uh, who has just started college, is uh, buried in homework and will not be with us until our CBS regular Sunday night show this evening, uh, but he does send his best to air all his friends in the UFO community. So we're very happy to have as our guest host today the former chief of the UFO project at the British Ministry of Defense, our good friend Nick Pope. Welcome back to the show, Nick. Thank you. It's good to be back. Okay, and uh, take it away. Okay, well, for listeners who are maybe new to this, I, I just want to start off by giving a very, very brief summary of the Rendlesham Forest incident, or the Bentwaters incident, as it's known to most uh, U.S. people. This is clearly Britain's most interesting and compelling UFO incident, both in terms of the number of witnesses and the reliability of those witnesses, trained military personnel, uh, security police, law enforcement personnel. The incident happened over a series of nights in December 1980, so we are, as you said in the intro, uh, in the 30th anniversary year, and I'm going to be coming back to that theme and talking about various events which are going to be pegged on that anniversary. Events kicked off with the sighting of strange lights in the forest, which some people attributed to a crashed aircraft. When personnel went out to investigate, they found not a crashed aircraft, but a landed UFO. Uh, not lights in the sky, uh, but a structured metallic craft, uh, something which, which some of the witnesses got close enough to touch to see symbols on the side. And, and we're going to be talking um, to some of those witnesses this evening. The UFO returned on a subsequent night where the witnesses included the deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, and we hope that Chuck's going to be joining us, of course, later in the show. In his own words, and I think this is important, he went out there, this is a direct quote, to debunk this, this UFO nonsense. He couldn't debunk it 
because he ended up a witness to it and remains to this day one of the uh, most senior military personnel to have seen and reported a UFO whilst on duty. Both the United States Air Force and the Ministry of Defense launched investigations, um, and we're going to be getting in, into a little bit of that later on. The MOD's defense intelligence staff assessed radiation readings taken at the landing site as being, quote, significantly higher than background. Some of the subjects that we're going to be covering this afternoon include recent remarks by Colonel Ted Conrad, uh, which, which perhaps have um, put a slightly different perspective on, on events, a BBC Inside Out radio broadcast, which did not find favor with many of the witnesses, and indeed, as you mentioned, the UFOs and nukes press conference that's going to be held tomorrow at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. So with that brief intro from me out of the way, what I would like to do, first of all, is, is maybe go to this story about t uh, Colonel Ted Conrad. This is, this is uh, quite a controversial thing. Ted Conrad was the base commander at the time of this interview, and a British researcher, Dr. David Clark, recently published uh, an interview with Ted Conrad in which he made some fairly critical remarks about the incident itself and about Colonel Holt's view on all this, and I hope that Chuck's going to come in on this later if he can join us. But first, because both of them have recently posted a joint response to this, I would perhaps like to turn it over to uh, Jim Penniston and John Burroughs to, to maybe give their response to Colonel Ted Conrad's remarks in, in which he basically said, look, this was a non-incident. Uh, it all got blown up out of, of proportion, and uh, he disputes many of the claims that have been made. Uh, Jim, John, would either or both of you like please to respond to that? <laughs> uh, you want to go, John, or you want me to, or what? You go ahead and go first, and I'll finish. Okay, okay. We, we did a joint statement on the uh, justice side. Uh, and by the way, Nick, it's nice to be back uh, on a show with you. Uh, thank you for the intro. Um, yeah, we fully support Colonel Conrad. Uh, and that's what our statement said. And uh, to see, the interesting thing is uh, we believe that Colonel Conrad is telling 100% the truth, and uh, he's seeing it like he knows it. Uh, but unfortunately... Uh, there was probably, uh, in near as we can tell, John and I, there's probably about six investigations going on uh, at that base at that time. And from Colonel Conrad's perspective, uh, yeah, it, everything he said is probably exactly the way, uh, you know, uh, he uh, had in the letter. Uh, matter of fact, I recall uh, the meetings that he described in there with me and what was discussed, and that was all accurate. Uh, I have no dispute over that. Um, but unfortunately, when OSI gets involved, the base commander doesn't necessarily know what's going on. That's okay, the, and, the, and the, sorry to interrupt the, you. I, I've seen your statement, but for listeners, you mentioned the fact that uh, you, you thought there were maybe six parallel investigations running. 
Can you please list the individuals and agencies that you believe were were involved? Sure. Sure. Uh, well, there was Colonel Con- Conrad's investigation. There was Colonel Halt's investigation. There was Colonel Williams' investigation. There was Malcolm Zickler, the chief of security police investigation. There was OSI investigation. There was an unknown entity investigation that was also either from the State Department or another U.S. agency. And, of course, there was the British investigation going on. Thank you. All right, so uh, why don't we continue with was that that was uh, Jim Penniston speaking, I believe, and uh, John, what's your comment on this on this aspect of the situation, well, uh, Colonel well, Conrad? I'll, uh, I'll go I'll go a lot deeper into it because I was actually in the middle of it, and what I mean by that is uh, it's probably been a year ago, you know, and I I don't have the dates right in front of me, but Dave Clark and Edward Pass had been getting back and forth with me trying to find information out on email. And I'm not afraid to talk to anybody, even the people that I, especially in Repath, I feel disrespect us. Uh, Dave Clark hasn't done it as much. He tries to show where he puts stuff on both sides. So, but Ian's pretty much one way, and he just tries to take any little thing that you'll say. And, well, I won't be surprised if something's on his website today. But anyway, getting into it, um, Dave Clark asked me about Colonel Conrad and stuff, and I, I told him, and um, I had some information on where he might be, to why don't you contact him yourself first and see what you got. And what he did was he wrote him a letter. And um, Carl Conrad uh, got back to him in, in the letter form. And, and after the letter form, he, he talked to him back and forth on email also. But the interesting thing was the deal was that it wasn't supposed to come out. In other words, it was asking some questions, get an idea of his stance on it, but it wasn't supposed to come out public. And so after uh, this went back and forth for a while, um, I got his email and I got in touch with Colonel Conrad. And this summer, I was able to go down to Texas and meet with Colonel Conrad. And I'm going to go ahead and say that now just because because after what uh, Dr. Clark did, it, uh, Colonel Conrad ran for cover. And uh, I doubt very much if he'll ever get him to say anything again. Um, and my whole goal was to try and get Colonel Conrad to come out and at least make a statement, you know, that he knew what he was he was going to be on the record. And unfortunately, now that's not going to happen. But I did actually get to meet with Colonel Conrad this summer. And I'm not going to go into great detail on it because when I talked to him again, it was um, it was more like off the record at that point. But what I will say is this: it was clear that there was some investigations going on, and then Moreau Neville's even said that he was brought into it prior to going to the officers' club that night with uh, Lieutenant England, because Colonel Conrad um, wanted them to go out and look in the forest, and that's when they spotted something again, and they went over and got Colonel Hall's group, and they went out into the forest. But there was clearly, and this was always one of the things that I always kept bringing up, how could the wing commander, who's on record saying that he had no idea what was going on, including Colonel Hall's memo, not know what's going on? And what clearly was going on was it was passed down, and the, it was passed down to other agencies, and OSI was the main lead agency from the base that was working on this. And they were kept out of the loop. And I can't say for sure whether it was purposely or they didn't want to know or it was just done that way, but they were clearly in an OSI investigation going on, and that was the group that was working on the base, not Colonel Conrad and Colonel Williams overall. Colonel Conrad did start to look into it at the beginning on orders of General Williams, but OSI took it over, and the lead point guy on the whole investigation that was going on in the base after the incidents was Malcolm Ziegler on OSI. Was Colonel, was Colonel Conrad, excuse me, uh, everyone, but was Colonel Conrad present during that entire period on the base? 
Well, yeah. Cal Connor was there on the base, but and he did talk with Jim, and 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 I met with him briefly one day right before I came back to work with Jim and Ed Kamantak, but he had more stuff he did through Ziggler through Jim. But it wasn't their investigation. They were not running the major investigation and what reports went out and everything else. I see. I'm sorry, Nick. Go ahead. No, that, that's uh, very helpful. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, in that. I mean, uh, General Conrad, and I don't want to, I, I mean, obviously not least for legal reasons. We have to be careful what we say here. But General Conrad made some fairly pointed criticisms of Charles Holt particularly in relation to uh, Charles Holt's um, comments about uh, drugs and interrogation and, and things like that. And I hope Chuck can, can join us later. But that, that was um, – I, I sense there is some tension between some of the senior officers involved in this. Can, can you comment on that? Well – it was clear to me, and this, again, I'm not divulging anything major, there's a code of conduct the military has and officers have, and it, it, it's hard for people on the outside civilians to understand, but it, there's certain things that it's kind of like if you're under orders or even if you're not totally under orders, there's certain things that the military and the officers, and they're not saying the listen aren't involved in this either, but especially the officers, that they keep quiet. And if you go back in history, most things that ever happen very rarely do officers, especially career officers, not necessarily some of the guys that were in for a short time and got out for whatever reason, but the career officers, the ones that spend their whole career in the military, they have this code that no matter what, unless they're ordered to or by higher-ups, that they keep, they keep quiet on the incident. They don't come out and make brash statements about the government, the military, and everything else and what goes on, and that's just something that's expected. You know, right, uh, Rick, I'd like to jump in on that a little bit. I, I do think that uh, there is tension between those two officers, and maybe the three officers, uh, Colonel Williams, Colonel Conrad, and Colonel Halt. And it is because of that code of conduct, that unwritten code of conduct between officers. I think they're upset with Colonel Halt going public with uh, so much information about uh, the incident and, uh, and pro- probably not... Uh, keeping them fully informed with stuff. I don't know. Uh, but it would be best if Colonel Halt answered that. I really, uh, that's just my opinion. Um, I don't, I don't uh, Colonel Halt would be able to give you better uh, facts on it, you know, what's going on there. All right. Yeah, we do have several listener questions uh, for him, and uh, if and when he joins us, we'll, we'll cut right in, and because uh, his time is limited. Uh, gentlemen, if we uh, let me just restate, if we could, uh, the usual uh, policy. Just uh, please identify yourself before you speak. I know there are only two of you, and Nick kind of stands out. But the, the, uh, the, 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 yes, my British accent is <laughs> probably you'll know it to me. But yes, I know if oh. if, um, if Jim and John, if you could just say which one of you is speaking, that would be helpful. Oh, this is Jim, and I know why you guys are confused because we're both from Illinois. We got the same yeah, accent, right? Well, here's someone from Phoenix. His name is Thomas Rettelman, and he sent in a question, uh, and, and it, it, it has to do with with the next subject. I thought we might want to uh, begin to discuss at some point, at least in this show, is what happened afterwards, the aftermath, the investigations, because we've been talking about the investigations. This uh, uh, Mr. Rettelman asks, uh, he's from Phoenix, the government covers up a lot. He says, I have seen at first hand an instance, instance that was at Giant Rock in Landers, California. 
A person I know was injected with a substance from an unknown source that caused him to glow a fluorescent green, caused burns on the hands and feet, and was extremely painful. Uh, the government covers up what they know. The green glow continued off and on for, for six months. Well, that's a new one. I, mean, I, I don't think that happened to you fellows, but, I mean, as far as the investigation was concerned, uh, were you drugged? That, that, that's a common question in this case. Uh, do you remember anything of that sort uh, occurring to yourselves or any of the other witnesses? Well, not initially. I mean, we... Uh... Uh, the, the morning uh, after uh, Halt's incident, the, uh, the second incident, uh, yeah, I was called an OSI, but it wasn't drugged then or nothing like that. I was questioned. I gave him a full statement, and they briefed me on what I had to say to the command element. Uh, then about a month later, uh, I was called back in OSI, and, uh, you know, and it seemed pretty logical at the time, and I just wanted it to go away because I was, I was actually concerned about my career, too. Um, and they said, well, the best way to do this is the sodium pentothal, and that way we never can establish everything is true and accurate, and, you know, I, I signed a release for it. So, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it wasn't forced, but, uh, you know, it was, uh, it would behoove me to do that, so I knew that. But, yeah, if you want to say that was a, a chemical, yes, a drug, yes, uh, but, uh, you know, one that makes it glow or something, I don't know, that, that sounds ridiculous. That's a new one on me, too. Well, here's another one. Okay, go ahead, Dave. Yeah, can I come in here? Please. Um, I, I have in front of me uh, Leslie Kane's uh, new book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. And I just want to read, because I think this is very important, what Charles Holt wrote. And, and this is important because these are his own words. Um, this is not Leslie retelling uh, Chuck's story. This is Chuck's own um, chapter, and and he's written the following. And I want to read this out, and and then maybe ask for your response, uh, particularly Jim and John. Um, and and this is a direct quote. Uh, let me find the bit. Here we are. OSI operatives harshly interrogated five young airmen, some of them in shock at the time, who were key witnesses. These men reported later that the agents told them not to talk about the UFO events or that their careers would be in jeopardy. Drugs such as sodium pentanol, often called the truth serum when used with some form of brainwashing or hypnosis, were administered during these interrogations, and the whole thing has had damaging and lasting effects on men involved. That's a direct quote. Um, I would be interested in a response to that well uh it's true <laughs> okay <laughs> terrifying it was a terrifying event uh yeah it was uh it was uh, not the most comfortable situation i was ever in uh i uh i wanted to be uh, completely uh, uh uh up front with osi i wanted the whole thing to go away i didn't want to be called back in there and um yeah they i i fairly well they said sign this document I signed it, but I tell you what, the uh, it gets very hazy. Uh, I don't know if anybody, anybody's been under that uh, influence of that drug before, <laughs> but it's uh, it, it's only a matter of seconds, and you're like uh, in La La Land. I mean, it's uh, uh, I can't remember a lot about the uh, interrogation or the or I guess that's the word to use, interrogation. Uh, but uh, they did ask about. Uh, 
they're going to compare my statement from the immediately right after Halt's incident, which was on the Monday morning, uh, before I met with Halt, matter of fact. And, uh, you know, that was part of it. And uh, the rest of it, I just don't remember. Uh, uh, was it traumatic? Absolutely. Uh, I would, uh, it depends, I think, how long you were in the military at the time, how well you handled it. Uh, I think that uh, also about your mental state before you went in the military, how well you handled it. Uh, some handled it better than others. Uh, I find that the younger airmen had more difficulty with it. Um, yeah, I, I agree with Hoff's statement. Well, what, what alarms me is that from my military experience, the use of sodium pentothal is generally limited to times of war or extreme, extreme emergencies. So, well, and... This, this, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. It's just That's just more in the nature of an observation. Yeah, this is what I want. This is a couple of things I want to bring up, okay? It, it, my experiences that came in talk to Colonel Conrad, I, I don't remember being interrogated or anything else. I've been told by a couple of other people that were involved that I was there. But here's a couple of things that I don't think have been touched on enough. Number one, why were they doing that to us, okay? And that's the first question you should be asking. Number two, we were uh, we are citizens of the United States, and we were on active duty in the military doing our job, so we weren't doing anything wrong. So right there, there should be a congressional investigation done. You have a, a Fulbright colonel now who retired said that we were interrogated, and that's enough right there for an investigation to get everything else because that's not the way you treat, you treat citizens uh, of a country. And the second thing is, is that they were doing that, they were looking for something, so that means they had no idea what was going on either. So, All right. I mean, those are two important points. Well, Matt, very much you've, so. You've raised, you've raised a very interesting um, point there, and it's a point that I, I want to pick up on. Now, I don't know if in America you use the same phrase that we use, but in the United Kingdom we have something called the military covenant. Now, the military covenant basically says this. Because men and women in the armed forces... Um, go above and beyond in, in terms of what they do, uh, just about everyone else, and, and sometimes obviously have to make the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, the point is that the chain of command, this is the covenant, the chain of command owes them um, in return um, a, a, a kind of contract, as it were, that they must be properly trained, properly equipped, properly looked after if things go wrong, and that's the key point. And the key point about the military covenant as well is that the duty of care is owed to the men and women of the armed forces, not just by the chain of command, but by the nation as a whole. Now, I know that some witnesses have called for congressional hearings on this. I know that there's even talk of, of legal action. Um, I, again, do you feel that you were let down, perhaps, by the chain of command? And I don't want to get into naming names for legal reasons, but um, I want to address this whole military covenant duty of care issue. By all means. Yes, we have, and, we have and, the same thing. This, um, yeah, we have the same thing in the, you know, in the United States uh, Air Force as, as you folks do. Um, yeah, and I tell you what, there's no problem mentioning names as long as everything you say is true. Okay. Nick, that's how it works. Colonel, I tell you what, I talked to Colonel Williams, excuse me, Nick, General Williams now, 
uh, retired uh, a few weeks ago. I can't tell you what he uh, everything he told me because a lot of it was confidential and he wanted to that way. Um, but he did uh, say that um, we were treated very, very unfairly, and uh, they knew that. Okay, they knew that they did not do their job that way. So, you know, and it's not just General Williams. I hear it from Colonel Halt the same thing. Colonel Conrad feels the same way. So everybody knows that we were not, that they did not uphold their end of it at the time. So if that's what, uh, you know, you're going with with that. Yes, and I want to, again, um, again, this is from Chuck Holt's uh, chapter. So this is his own words, not Leslie Kane's retelling of it. This is his own words in Leslie Kane's book. Uh, he goes on to say, other witnesses may have been exposed to high doses of radiation from the landed object. Some have health problems and struggle with personal issues to this day. Now, you're probably familiar with that, and I'm sure you've you've read Leslie Kane's book. But again, if if uh, either Jim or John would like to respond to that, uh, the, the whole incident of the, the whole issue of of um, exposure to radiation. Okay, we'll um, have to hold well, that till after the break. We have a break coming up, and uh, okay. we'll. Get right back to that as soon as we return. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on AchieveRadio.com live streaming. And we are in our Rendlesham special number four uh, with Jim Peniston and John Burroughs and our good friend Nick Pope, who is uh, our guest host today and anchor. And we'll be right back. Stay with us uh, as we continue to discuss, to discuss this mind-boggling case from 1980 in Britain. Be right back. Hi folks, this is Paul Eno, co-host of Behind the Paranormal here on Achieve Radio. We're very pleased to have as our sponsor, New River Press and Barking Cat Books, publishers of some of the most unusual New Age titles on the market today. Along with four books by moi, New River Press offers the blockbuster on animal communication, Hear All Creatures, The Journey of an Animal Communicator by Karen Anderson, Shadows on My Shift, Real Life Stories of a Psychic EMT by Psychic Medium Sherry Lee Devereaux, Achieve Radio talk show host of Opening Your Intuitive Eyes, and in a true story that will break your heart with its beauty, especially if you've ever lost a child. There's 41 Signs of Hope by Dave Kane about the ongoing love and communication between a father and a mother and their son, youngest victim of the 2003 nightclub fire in Rhode Island. Finally, from Barking Cat Books, don't miss the action adventure that spans a thousand years, Heaven's Wave, a novel of the doomsday prophecy of 2012 by Dierline. Visit NewRiverPress.com, BarkingCatBooks.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookstore. The divine name is a universal sound that, when intoned, has the ability to bring harmony and healing to ourselves and the planet. Discover the power of this lost sound through the new book, The Divine Name by Healing Sounds pioneer, Jonathan Goldman. With a foreword by Greg Braden and a free instructional CD, this groundbreaking book can take us to a new level of evolution. Go to www.thedivinename.com and discover The Divine Name. 
deep within you is an unstoppable power. If you want to deepen your relationships, supercharge your productivity, and enjoy more life energy than you've felt in years, then visit LetNothingStopYou.org to learn more about Secrets of Being Unstoppable by Guy Finley. This new audio program will give you the knowledge you need to enjoy the happiness and success your heart longs for. That's Guy Finley's Secrets of Being Unstoppable at LetNothingStopYou.org. Ever thought about Machu Picchu and the civilization of the ancient Incas? Well, join the folks from Rock Your Life, Dave Rogers, myself, Mike Hancock, and Vincent Barra, the Psychic Psychic, for an extraordinary trip in 2011 in September to Peru and Bolivia, Lake Titicaca, Lima, Cuzco, Machu Picchu, all of your favorites in Inter La Paz. We'll see you there in Bolivia, Peru, 2011. Go to www.souljourneys.co.nz AchieveRadio.com And we are back behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, minus the Ben today. He's in college now and is buried in homework. But we do have our good friend Nick Pope, former chief of the UFO desk at the British Ministry of Defense, who is anchoring our panel today, and the panel consisting of uh, John Burroughs and Jim Penniston, witnesses to the uh, horrendous experiences of the um, U.S. Air Force personnel at Rendlesham Forest and the adjacent NATO bases in 1980. And we are in our fourth special radio broadcast about this. 1980 incident. So uh, we uh, Nick had just asked a question, and uh, perhaps Nick, if you could just briefly restate it for those who may be joining us late, and uh, we can have uh, Jim and, uh, and John um, answer it. Uh, yes. Uh, so you'll have to refresh my memory there. I'd, I'd um, uh, spoken, hadn't I, about the, the uh, Chuck Holt's radiation um, uh, quote. Exactly. It's concerns about radiation yes. uh, in large doses uh, upon the witnesses from the landed craft. Now, now there's, um, there, there's obviously a high degree of controversy about this. Uh, um, Monroe Neville's, of course, the disaster preparedness officer, took some readings with a Geiger counter. Some skeptics have challenged that and said, well, maybe the meter wasn't read accurately, and in any case, it wasn't an appropriate piece of equipment from which to take readings. Well, seeing as we don't have a kind of UFO detector meter, I, I, I think we have to run with what we have. But let me restate what Charles Holt wrote in Leslie Kane's book. Other witnesses may have been exposed to high doses of radiation from the landed objects. Some have health problems and struggle with personal issues to this day. Um, so again, I, I just want to pose the question uh, to the, the, the witnesses, to, to John and Jim, do you feel that that's an issue with yourselves and others? And do you feel as well, this is, I think, an important question, do you feel that Charles Holt going on the record in a book which has a forward by John Podesta, for goodness sake. This is not a, this is not a sort of new age book. This is a mainstream book with, with a forward written by Bill Clinton's former chief of staff. Do you feel that those quotes maybe might open the door to congressional hearings? Go ahead, John. All right. Well, first of all, on the radiation, okay, um, Here's the take on it. Uh, the tape that Colonel Holt made out there showed that they were getting readings of, of you know, higher than background radiation. Um, 
the readings have been taken and looked at and um, by uh, Linda Howe did it by a guy that, you know, worked in the radiation field. And he, he clearly said they were above background. I mean, you can't dispute it that it's on the tape. You can hear the readings being given out. Now, how high it was it, it at the point when they took the readings that night, it wasn't high enough to do severe damage to the people that were out there in the field that evening. But what exactly was it when we were there? You know, no one will know for sure. But the interesting thing that that came out from this guy was, and this was just a question asked him, was it, that did we have anything that was capable of the type of radiation that, that was in, that we had in service that was able to fly or be involved to leave those traces? And his comment was no. Um, we we've had health issues. Um, uh, one of the things I had some vision problems, and um, when I went in to have a check, the first thing the guy asked me was, "Had I ever been exposed to radiation?" But we've had health issues. Um, it's clear the government knows something happened to us because we were talking about this earlier. They're aware of that we've had health issues, we've had problems, but they've done nothing. And the other interesting thing is, everyone makes this big deal. The skeptics have come out and picked at us, but our government hasn't picked at us. Um, no one from the government stepped in and said it didn't happen. Um, no one's come in and tried to give an explanation of what it was. Um, if you look at the, some of the incidents, even the one here in Phoenix where I live, they, they stepped in a few days or a week or whatever it was later and tried to say it was flares in the sky. But in our incident, they never did. As a matter of fact, I've said this before, when CNN contacted them, they said they stood by the Halt memo and that there, there was an incident that took place out there. Yeah, this is Jim. I'm going to speak on that. Uh, also, well, you know, I don't want to go into the medical conditions. That there I can't go into with uh, uh, some of the other people. Like Monroe and Neville suffers from uh, conditions from that. Uh, John has his own uh, uh, conditions from that. I have mine. Uh, uh, yes, they were uh, uh, there. Uh, my doctor has said that, yes, it's usually uh, radiation-related. Uh, uh so uh, in my in my incident, actually, I'll, uh, one of the items uh, started as fast as one month after the incident, and you know that's fully documented with my medical records and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's been ongoing. And whether you know uh, the you know wherever they're using it for an instrument was uh, accurate, uh, I think is uh, you know is academic at this point. I mean, yes, we were affected by radiation levels out there that were not of ordinary radiation levels. Um, background may, radiation. So, uh, yeah. May, may, I, may I just ask a question? A question quickly here, uh, John or Jim? Was there any other activity in the line of duty uh, in in which you would have been in contact with with radiation beyond the normal levels, such as such as you apparently have experienced? No, not for, well, not for me. Either. Okay. Well, and mine all happened right. I'm sorry, from this job, for me, mine happened after, right after the incident. So, no, I mean, the problems I had were, you know, quickly after the incident continued on. So, and um, being that I'm not security, I mean, if you were security and you worked in weapon storage areas, they could try to use that against you, but I didn't actually work inside the storage area, so I was never near any kind of device or uh, equipment that would uh, be um, that have radiation, that type okay. of radiation anyway. All right, very good. That's just a question I thought might come up. I'm sorry, Nick. Go ahead. Yeah, I'd like to move on now, if I may, to the recent BBC Inside Out broadcast, uh, which featured Ian Ridpath. Um, 
again, putting forward maybe the lighthouse theory, which um, is, is, I guess, out of all the, the skeptical theories that are doing the rounds, and maybe we'll come on to some of the other ones later, like burning trucks of manure and uh, police cars with, with their lights flashing. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that. But the lighthouse, the lighthouse remains the main skeptical theory uh, to date. And the, the BBC radio show gave Ian Ridpath some airtime to put this forward. And, and again, I just really with no preface from me, I, I would invite Jim and John to maybe respond to that. Well, this is Jim. I, I'm going to respond first because it's really uh, there's two there's two different incidents uh, with Rendlesham. There was the first night, and of course the uh, uh, what happened on the third night. And John was involved in both of them. He's the only witness that was involved in both nights. Uh, the first night, well, where we were at, and we're going to clearly show this because it's how absurd it is. Uh, uh, on the 28th of December, uh, anybody in England's welcome to come out there, uh, to Reynoldsham Forest and we'll be glad to show them exactly the route we took. And, uh, at no point, uh, from, uh, 50 yards past the East, East Gate, you can ever, uh, misidentify the lighthouse with what we've seen. Um, we, uh, the first thing that security forces do, whether you're law enforcement or security, you acclimate yourself to uh, the surroundings at night. Okay, that's the first thing you do when you start working uh, uh, at the base. And we knew where all kinds of things were at. We knew where uh, towers were at. We knew where lighthouses were at. Uh, we knew where the highway was at. Uh, we, we knew all those things. You know, uh, that's just part of being a security force member. You So you don't go ahead and have... Uh, Anything that would distract you. Um, so you know, it's just, it's just totally absurd. If he wants to, the skeptic wants to go on about the lighthouse. Fine, uh, he's got a lot of explaining to do. I mean, what about the impressions in the ground? What about the craft itself? I mean, this is not a light in the sky story. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, it's and it's actually uh, sort of insulting because we are all experts in identifying. Um, Silhouetted aircraft, whether they were NATO, whether they were Warsaw Pack, uh, we were uh, uh, constantly uh, uh, trained on this. I mean, like every month. I mean, it's just uh, it's uh, there's no way we could misidentify a, a lighthouse. <laughs> I'm sorry, mm. it is so ridiculous to even bring that up, Nick. I I know it was on the BBC. I know that John has some really strong feelings about. Uh, the individual that was uh, that reported that, I guess he went out there with the reporter to, uh, I guess, uh, re-see a uh, lighthouse or something. I don't know what he was expecting out there. But we knew exactly where that lighthouse was. And we also knew that uh, uh, there was other things that were flashing around, too, you know. I mean, we had towers. I mean, those were all obvious to us. Okay. No, that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, uh, okay, uh, here, here, here's here's my take on it. Yeah, you have people out there that that they devote their lives uh, fully towards discrediting anything that could be abnormal as far as what they're not used to dealing with on a daily basis. Um, he's clearly one of them. I mean, 
besides the lighthouse, he tried to throw in planets and stars. And where he completely lost me on this was when I brought up Hulk's tape. And if you listen to the whole part, where and people have tried to say that was made up, which it wasn't, but you listen to the one part that always stood out to me. When when he gets into the part where it's now beaming down of a beam of light, and and then his voice, if you listen to a clear tape of it, he, he his voice is quivering and he's going, "This is unreal." And I mean, when when I asked him about that, he tried to say, "Well, Chuck was looking at a star, and he was fooled by a star." I I, I just lost it. I mean, but with the lighthouse, in my instance, if you look at my statement, which is the one I made after the incident, and I hand wrote it. Um, we had our, we had, we saw some stuff. We went out to look. We had the encounter. Then we, we started to move forward after it moved away, and we saw a beacon. And I put in there, we saw a beacon, and we followed it, and we identified it as the lighthouse. And with the lighthouse, we did identify a lighthouse out there, but we didn't identify it until after we had our encounter. We went forward, and then we saw the beacon. And the other part of it is with this lighthouse that I find interesting is. I had some conversations with Ian, and I, I offered on the 28th, Jim and I are going to be out there for him to show up with Dr. Clark, and I'm not getting into, we didn't want to get into a bait or do any of that, but just come with us to our area and show us from that area where we had the encounter how the lighthouse affected what we saw, and they declined. So not getting into the third night or the second night, that lighthouse was not what we were dealing with when we went out there, and they know that. And so for them to keep hammering away on that lighthouse, it, it, it's insulting. And I, I just, it's honestly, it's just insulting. So I mean, that's my take on the whole thing. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. I, let's, while we're talking about lighthouses, maybe address the two other skeptical theories which which have been banded around um which which is the kevin condy um i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing that correct condy or cond um theory that he was responsible for this for some sort of prank involving a police car with with its lights flashing but with the siren not blaring and the burning truck of manure i i just <laughs> I mean, okay, I'm slightly biased on this myself, and I will probably get criticized for this, but I'm kind of going to personally maybe disparage those two theories before I even ask for your comments on this. What I think is interesting about all of this is is that for people who, who make um, claims about UFOs and say we've seen unusual things, skeptics kind of say, well, there's, you know, prove it. Um, there's a kind of bar which they set fairly high, and they say, well, we want some evidence. What, what strikes me as kind of interesting about this is actually, when you look at the Kevin Condy theory, or, or the burning truck of manure theory, we don't even know, this is this is a really interesting point. We don't even know whether these incidents actually happened because what we're dealing with is a single individual making a claim. We don't even know that these things happened, let alone whether they happened, um, 
if it if had a bearing on the whole incident. So what I'm what I'm saying is, before we even ask the question, could Kevin Conn's prank have explained the Rendlesham Forest incident? We actually have to ask a far more fundamental question. Did his prank actually ever take place? Because it's only his word for it. Responses, please. Well, well, I don't have it. This is Jim. I have no idea whether that took place or not. The first time I heard it was a few years back on on a a story that came out on the Internet, and I was thinking, okay, well... uh, um, you know, and, and obviously no one did any type of investigation with uh, Kevin on that. Uh, and I happen to know Kevin Condi. Um, you know, uh, at least someone should have asked him, you know, like what night it was. Uh, maybe uh, some more basic information, like uh, where was it? Uh, where were you located? None of that stuff was even asked. And, you know, and could it have happened? Sure, I imagine it's possible. Uh, uh, I but that, I just, it just wasn't, uh, pulling pranks around the, uh, uh, that air base at that time, uh, with the resources that were on that base, uh, was not, uh, prudent. Um, <laughs> it's something that you would not, you know, I, I find it hard to believe as far as it was, uh, you know, not the policeman. Yeah. Okay, well, let, let me. This is John. Sorry, this is John. John. I'd like to John, comment. John, sorry. So, uh, Kevin Condy wasn't on our flight, and if I'm not mistaken, at the time, he was in the back office. He may have been just coming out of the back office, but he was in the back office, and I'm not sure which a, which department he worked in, but it had something to do with training. And he definitely wasn't on our flight. So on our night, he wasn't out there driving the patrol cars because the two guys on duty in law enforcement were Sergeant Stephens and I. So we can throw that one away now. I don't believe I've ever heard his name mentioned on the Colonel Halt's night because I don't believe he was law enforcement that night either. So the fact that if he ever went out in the woods and played a prank like that is irrelevant when it comes to what happened to us. And the manure thing was a joke because some guy made a statement, and I contacted the reporter who did it. He said that, well, we didn't really just some guy made a statement. My editor wanted me to print it. Um, I did it. I didn't even follow up. I kind of asked him if I should. He said no, and I just threw it out there. And that goes back to the BBC report where they just took Dave Clark and Ian Ritpath, and they put them, They went ahead and went out and did something, and, and they didn't have the courtesy to have anybody that was out there on. So, I mean, it's all biased the way the news, majority of the news, the mainstream news does their business, and that's just what we have to deal with all the time. Okay, thank you for that. That's that's very helpful. What I would now like to do, and you alluded to this, I think, in fact, I think, Jim, you alluded to this. We're obviously approaching now the 30th anniversary. Um, you mentioned your own personal plans to come back and, and mark this. Now, I know that there's been a lot of talk about um, uh, press conferences, TV shows. Some things may happen, some may not. Can I ask again, Jim and John, what are you personally going to be doing to mark the 30th anniversary? Well, we're going to be going over to England on the 28th of December. We're going to be out there. Um, we invite. Uh, we have we have people, uh, you know, that are interested in the British citizens, and they should be interested in it, uh, that want to uh, 
uh, see, you know, the route we took, uh, exactly how it happened, uh, and we'd be glad to explain that with them. And uh, and we have put an open invitation out to that uh, for whoever, whoever wanted to show up on the 28th over there. Uh, I think uh, it would put a lot of thing in, things in perspective also for them. The other thing about the anniversary, we feel that we need to go back over there, John and I. We haven't been there since, uh, well, since the night of the uh, incident. That was the last uh, uh, time that both of us were in that uh, forest together. So, uh, yeah, we, we feel compelled to do that. How do you think that's going to? How do you think that's going to affect you emotionally? That's going to be quite a thing for you, isn't it? Oh uh, yes, and John and I have talked about this on the uh, on the phone, and uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a, a very emotional um, uh, undertaking. There, uh, we're not sure how we're going to react. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure that uh, like with everything else with the military, you always get total flashbacks out of it, you know, what was happening. It doesn't seem like no time went by. And I'm, I'm sure that will be part of the, what's going on out there. Uh, but the, the real unique thing about uh, Rendlesham uh, at this time is uh, the forest has regrown. It's back to the way it was, the way it looked in 1980. So that will even put more significant impact on, on how uh, John and I handle uh, that situation out there. Uh, this is John. Um, the other thing, too, that's interesting is, from what I understand, the lighthouse is getting ready to be decommissioned. I'm not sure if that's a fact, but I've been told that. So besides the fact that Jim and I have never been back out there together, and it'll be good for us to do that, and both of us have had some kind of feelings that we need to be back out there on the, the 30th anniversary. And uh, it, it'll help also because anyone who would like to come out there, they'll get a better feeling for what we were dealing with because – the interesting thing that I always find out is these people, especially skeptics, sit back and just act like it was no big deal. Like, you know, it, it happened to us all the time. You know, it was like a normal occurrence on a daily basis. Well, we came on duty and we were expecting this to happen and, you know, and everything else. Well, we had to make a lot of decisions in a hurry as far as something started happening. We went out and we tried to deal with it as best as we could. We had some strange things happening to us. And... um so it'll be interesting for some people to understand the feelings and get the grasp of what we were dealing with that night and how you know how how they felt feel out in that area, which that 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 area and going into the woods itself is a little strange in itself. So that's how I feel about it. Yeah, and just to dovetail off that, this is Jim. I don't think that's one thing that's never been really described. I mean, they, they, uh, you hear the media and everybody else talk about all the UFO, UFO sighting at Rundlesham, and uh, a lot of people have told me how neat that would be and how how unique that is. Well, I'm going to tell you what. <laughs> we went out there, and like John said, and we had to make decisions fast. Uh, and it wasn't a pleasant experience. It was intense, and that that word does, does not do the feeling that uh, John and I had out there uh, that night. Uh, there's, I don't think there's a word to describe it. We were we were very. It was a very intense situation, and uh, we were making decisions very quickly. Uh, I mean, we were dispatched because uh, we thought it was a possible aircraft downing, and we thought there was lives in danger and other things. Uh, I will say that uh, maybe John might have a different view on that because 
uh, he, uh, when I arrived at the gate with uh, uh, him and Bud Steffens there, Bud even said, he says, that thing didn't crash, it landed. So, you know, it just didn't make no sense, that part there. I discounted it because it had to be an aircraft crash. What else could it be? It looked like one. It looked like, the you know, what the material looks like when it's on fire. I mean, the color that's produced by it. And then uh, and then we went out and... Uh, um, to get to, to the, the crash site or suspected crash site, it was, you know, we're only talking five minutes maybe, maybe three minutes. This is all happening very, very fast. And uh, emotionally, uh, it's probably the, the worst emotional uh, situation I ever had in the military, and I had a few, but this, this is actually at the top of the list. Uh, so... If you want to, and I actually, uh, we're debunkers too. The last thing that we're going to do with those, with those type of high value, um, resources at those base and our war mission and what we were supposed to do in event of wartime, uh, the last thing we're out there for is to, uh, uh, chase lights in the sky or stuff like that. It's just, it's just so absurd to even think that, uh, we were out investigating to make sure there was not anything out there would jeopardize the security of the resources or the personnel at that base. At a certain point, that's when it happened. And that's when I knew that was an aircraft crash. That's when an investigation began. And John and I had something that we had never encountered before, something that um, nobody else should ever have to encounter. And, um, yes, very disturbing situation for us. And if I, I'm sorry, this is John. This is John, I want to add one more thing. Can I just add this real quick? There's one more person who's with us, and he has done some interviews before, and he's disappeared. And I'd like to put a personal call out now for Ed Kavantak, if he's listening or if someone knows how to get a hold of him, to contact him and ask him to contact Jim or I um, on the Justice page, or we have emails on there also, because... It wasn't just Jim and I out there that night. There was another person out there, and we would really like him to be able to, to come out and talk about it again and be there with us on on, on the 28th if he would contact us, um, you know, and anyone that has any idea how to get a hold of him, if he would get a hold of us also, because we'd really like to get Ed to come out and talk about his experience also. Very good. Uh, we do have a break coming up at the top of the hour, but could you, could you just uh, tell us about that Facebook page that you mentioned, the uh, Justice for the uh, 81st? Yeah, it's it's on Facebook. Um, you can go and put either Jim and my name in. You know, we both have Facebook accounts to get to it, or you can put in the justice for uh, the men and women of the 81st Security Police Squadron. And it's a site that's set up for anyone who is involved out there to come on, um, or anyone that would like to find out more about it. And we're over 3,000 now. And our goal between now and December, if possible, was to try to get as many as we can, maybe up to 5,000. So. You know, 10 would even be better, but that's just to get people more aware of what's going on and to help get the word out. As it is a very active site, a lot of communication goes on. We even communicate sometimes through that site. And, again, it's a Facebook mm-hmm. site, Justice for the 81st. And uh, <clears throat> we're coming up on our break now. When we come back, we have other questions to go on. I'd like to um, we'll deal with some of your questions, of those of you who have written in. In our second hour, and uh, I, and Nick, Nick will continue carrying us along uh, as ably as he has been, and we're going to get into um, some very interesting 
deeper areas of this case and uh, with with our guests, uh, Jim Penniston and uh, John Burroughs and, of course, Nick Pope. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on AchieveRadio.com, streaming live all over the world. And we will be right back after our top-of-the-hour break with our return to Rendlesham number 4 radio special. Stay with us. AchieveRadio.com. Hi, folks. This is Paul Eno, co-host of Behind the Paranormal here on Achieve Radio. We're very pleased to have as our sponsor New River Press and Barking Cat Books, publishers of some of the most unusual New Age titles on the market today. Along with four books by Moi, New River Press offers the blockbuster on animal communication Hear All Creatures, The Journey of an Animal Communicator by Karen Anderson, Shadows on My Shift, Real Life Stories of a Psychic EMT by Psychic Medium Sherry Lee Devereaux, Achieve 